Please be seated. Well, we invite the kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. As we continue our study through Revelation. Last Sunday, Pastor Seth finished up chapter 7, and it was a, a powerful text describing the glories and the wonders of eternal life. It, it just painted a picture of, of heaven. And, you know, if you weren't here last Sunday, if you weren't able to make it to church, I would just encourage you sometime this week to go to our church's website and either download or listen live online to that sermon that Seth preached last Sunday. It was just really an amazing picture of eternal life and, and the home that we have in Christ and in heaven. But this morning, the pendulum swings to the extreme other end, thematically. And we go from the glories and wonders of heaven to the terrors of God's judgment. And Revelation tends to be that way. Uh, you know, this is good weather for Revelation 8 and 9. That storm last night was a great mental preparation. As we think about the fact that God is a holy God and that He is a God of justice. And so today I have an ambitious goal. I want to preach two chapters of Revelation. Revelation 8 and 9. And in these chapters, we have what I believe is one of the most frightening verses in Revelation that we have studied so far. Just a, a really chilling terrifying verse. And so I want to look at that with you as we study the, the trumpet judgments of Revelation 8 and 9. So let's start at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints and on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. And then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. So, so here we have the transition from the seven seals, which we have been studying for the last several weeks, to the seven trumpets. We have this kind of literary hinge that connects us from one to the other. And, and if you remember, I may, I've been making the argument, my, my own understanding of Revelation, there's different ways to understand it, but the way I, that makes most sense to me is to see each of these cycles as actually sort of repetitive in nature. So we, we came to the end of the seven seals and we had a vision of the final judgment day and what Seth preached on last Sunday, I believe, is a picture of final salvation. And then if you come to the end of the seven trumpets, you have a picture of the final judgment day and the final salvation. You come to the end of the seven bowls, final judgment, final salvation. So, so that each of these cycles within Revelation, rather than being historically chronological, I think are, are more repetitive in nature. So it's more like you reach the end of the seven seals and then you put the car in reverse and you cover the same period again from the first and second comings of Christ and, and you now do it through the seven trumpets. Then you put the card in reverse and you do it again and again. So, so it's not so much a chronological sequence as it is more like, I think of it like overheads, uh, you know, transparencies on an overhead. 
that are sort of laid on top of each other. And as each one is laid on the next one, it fills in gaps and parts that the other one weren't. So anyway, that's the approach I'm taking to Revelation. So as we come here to these trumpet judgments, I'm seeing them as things that are taking place now to some degree, as opposed to things that follow the seals within history. Um, We should also say a word before we dig into it about trumpets. Why trumpets? What's up with trumpets? What does that mean? Does that signify anything? Now, when you're thinking of trumpets here, don't think like, you know, uh, Boston Pops. All right. This is not, you know, not like Chris Bowl here. You know, his, he can play all kinds of things on his trumpet. He's a master trumpet player. It's not that kind of trumpet, though. It's not uh, to, to play different notes and songs. These are the old school trumpets, you know, just a big ram's horn. Like, you know, you just play one note. It's and that's it. Or they made these big silver trumpets and they would blow them in different patterns to signal things. So that trumpets in the Bible are more for signaling as opposed to playing tunes. Uh, and so when Israel was in the wilderness, they would blow the trumpet and one sort of blast meant come together for a meeting and they'd blow it when they set out. Uh, when, the, when they would coronate a new king, they would blow the trumpets to signal the event. And another time that they used trumpets was in warfare. You know, they, they didn't have walkie-talkies or whatnot, so the way they would signal on a large battlefield was through the different trumpet blasts. So, so that's a very common way that trumpets uh, appear in the Old Testament. And so, very quickly, you have an association between trumpets and disaster. Trumpets in warfare. Trumpets in judgment. They, they become a symbol or a picture of, of God bringing judgment, God bringing calamity upon a nation. Uh, you know, I think about uh, the Battle of Jericho. You know, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. How'd that battle go? You know, that Jericho was shut up tight. It was sealed. They closed the, the door and barred it. And the Israelites came. And how did they attack it? Did they build siege towers and catapults and trebuchets and all those, you know, siege engines? No. They just marched around it for seven days. And every day they just had this big parade around it. No one said a word. They just marched around Jericho. Except they did do one thing. They blew trumpets. They had seven priests with seven trumpets. And this ominous picture of this army marching around you just going, you know, see you. It's going to happen. And and so it's these these warnings of imminent destruction. And on the seventh day, they march around it seven times. They blow the trumpet. They give a shout. And what happened? The walls came tumbling down. And so it's almost this picture of God marching around this world that has walled itself off from Him, saying, we, will, we do not need God. We are self-sufficient. And God is marching around the world, blowing the trumpets. They're warnings of the coming day when Christ will return and the walls will come tumbling down. And so I, I see these judgments, these trumpets, as ominous warnings, uh, not only of judgment themselves, but of the, fu- the final coming judgment. So with that being said, let's dig in and let let me start by just uh, reading the first four trumpet judgments because they really do kind of hang together. Verse 6, again, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet. It's something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet. 
And a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Wow, terrifying images. Frightening images of doom and cataclysm. What's going on in these verses? What, what, what is this all about? When does this take place? What does all this mean? Well, let me make just four observations about these first four trumpets. I, I don't know everything that it means. Okay, it, it's, it's really difficult to fully understand a lot of the images in Revelation. But let me at least make what I think are four sort of safe observations. Uh, the first observation I would make is that uh, all four of these trumpets go together. Okay, I think we can say that. You know, they, they form a kind of package, which actually is the pattern that we see in all the other cycles. You remember the seals that we studied already? The first four seals are kind of a package. They're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then you've got these four judgments, and they all kind of hang together, and the four bowls. So you have a four plus three kind of pattern. And, and I would argue, um, not everyone reads it this way, but I would argue that that again, that shows that kind of transparency overlaying each other kind of structure of the book. So, so that the seals with the four horsemen of the apocalypse are somehow parallel to, if not identical to, but at least parallel to, these first four trumpet judgments. So, so they all fit together. It's kind of a package. It's a four plus three structure to these cycles. The second observation I would make is, is to notice uh, that, that phrase, a third. You know, a third, a third, a third, a third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees, a third of the seas, a third of the moon, a third of the day, you know, a third, a third, a third. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is, is that it's a partial judgment, that we haven't reached that final judgment day yet when the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, that these are initial things leading up to it. It reminds me of what Jesus said. I don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. What Jesus said when he talked about the end times in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So there's going to be things that happen before the second coming of Christ that seem like the end of the world, but they're not. They're just partial. They're they're, uh, not in totality yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I mean... It's like this last two weeks. There was an earth, you know, there's an earthquake in Haiti, there's an earthquake in Chile, there's an earthquake in Turkey. You know, just the world sometimes seems like it's falling apart. Verse eight: All these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. So, so what we're seeing here are preliminary, precipitatory, prelude kinds of cataclysms that are warnings to the world that God is saying, "Wake up, pay attention. The end is coming. Are are we paying attention?" And listening, it's God's alarm clock. <laughs> Wake up! Is what God is saying through these sort of judgments. The third observation I'll make about the four trumpets is notice the language borrowed from the Exodus in Egypt. Remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go? You know that story? And what did Pharaoh say? He's like, Are you kidding me? Who are you? Get out of here. I'm not letting your people go. So God sent a plague. Then he went back and said, now let my people go. No, I won't let them go. God sent another plague. And so he sent ten plagues upon Egypt. And they were like these trumpets. They were warnings to Pharaoh to soften his heart and let the people go. But Pharaoh wouldn't. He hardened his heart. 
So, so you have this sort of tension going on there. Well, look at here in these trumpets. You see the same kinds of plagues. In the first trumpet, there's hail and fire. That, that's one of the plagues from Egypt. In the second trumpet, you have the sea turning into blood. That was like one of the plagues of Egypt. In the fourth trumpet, you have darkness. There was a plague of darkness. In the fifth trumpet, which we'll get to in a minute, you had locusts. Right? So, so you have all this exodus imagery coming back. So, so what does all that mean? Well, I think that, that whatever is going on in these trumpets, that the theological meaning and significance of them is the same as what was happening during the Exodus. What was happening during the Exodus? Well, God was, was warning a pagan, idol-worshipping, oppressive people to repent and let the people of God go. And, and, and so in the same way, you know, the, the church to whom this was originally written in the first century A.D., lived under Rome, which was a pagan, idol-worshipping nation that was oppressing God's people. And this would have been a great encouragement to them to know that God was saying, let my people go. That God is warning them. So, so it's, it's God speaking to this world just like he spoke to the Egyptians back in the time of Moses. And then that leads me to my fourth observation, which is kind of related. The fourth observation I make about these four trumpets is that they all hit different parts of the created order. So the first trumpet hits the earth, the second trumpet, the oceans, the third trumpet, the fresh water, the fourth trumpet, the heavens, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars. So sort of like all of creation is somehow affected by this. Um, now, now, why is that? What does that mean? Well, I, I made this argument a couple sermons back too, but I think it's kind of an ironic judgment on an idolatrous world. You know, what's the heart of idolatry? What makes idolatry idolatry? Is it having a wooden statue set up in your house that you pray to and burn incense to? I mean, that's one type of idolatry, but I think idolatry can look different in a lot of different ways. You know, the, the fundamental dynamic of being an idol worshiper is, is ascribing ultimate significance to the creation rather than the creator. Anytime I ascribe ultimate significance to this world, I've become idolatrous, even if I don't actually set up a little statue in my house and bow down to it. I mean, that's what idolatry is. It's a substitution of the creation for the Creator. And so there's this ironic judgment that's taking place here where God is like, okay, you think, you think this world is what it is? Fine. I'll shake the world. You, you thought this was what, what ultimate hope is? Fine. Which, by the way, interestingly, is exactly what was happening during the plagues in Exodus. Right? You know, God, God was speaking to this Egyptian people who were idolaters. I mean, they worshipped the sun. They had a name for him. They called him Ra, the sun god. God's like, you think that's God? Fine, I'll make it go black. You know? And they worshipped the Nile. The Nile River was a god to the Egyptians. Like, you think that's God? Fine, I'll turn it to blood. All the fish are dead. Like, oh. you know, they thought Pharaoh was God. He was the son of Horus. He, he was a divine king in their mind. And, and God's like, you think he's God? Fine, I'll kill his firstborn son. Well, see who's God here. And so one by one, if, if you take the time to go back and look at Egyptian religious belief, all of the plagues of the Exodus are targeted at different Egyptian deities that were, were worshipping the creation. And so here is this message that this world is not divine. This world is not God. You know, and, and, and are we listening? 
God is trying to tell us that. So it's a, it's a warning judgment, shaking ironically our trust in this world to see that God is the true God and calling this world to repentance. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, 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 but, but what is it exactly? I want to know what the hail is. I want to know what the big rock is that comes out of the sky. I mean, is that a meteor that's going to hit the earth? Is this going to be like the movie Armageddon? Like, what's going to happen, you know? And uh, I, I don't really know. Um, you know, people do their best to interpret these things. I think they can have multiple fulfillments. If you were to put me in a corner and put me in a headlock and force me to give an interpretation to these things, I, I suppose the, uh, probably the, the, the interpretation that makes the most sense to me is, uh, well, for the first trumpet, the, the hail and the fire, I would just take that as a symbol of economic disaster and famine. You know, like, look, the hail comes down and what does it hit? It hits all the, the agriculture, all the trees and the plants. And, you know, that's what it did during the Exodus plagues. The hail came down and it destroyed their crops. So this is sort of like that third horseman of the apocalypse, in my mind, the, the black horse of famine. And so there's famine in the world. There's economic downturns. You know, again, we trust in our money. Money's our God. So God's like, money's your God? Okay, we'll see about that. The economy, down. You know, that's your God? Because I can make it go up, I can make it go down. Watch, it goes up, it goes down. You know, what do you trust in? And so it, it's a, I see that as sort of an economic disaster. You know, the next one is this uh, big fiery mountain falling out of the sky. I mean, is this some big meteor? I, I take the big fiery mountain and the, and the star. Again, if I had to be forced to an interpretation, probably the one that makes the most sense to me is to see these as as the fall of nations and kingdoms. Like, nations and kingdoms? What are you talking about? Well, if you look at the symbolism of mountains in the Old Testament and in Revelation, they're very common symbols for nations. There's Mount Zion, which is the nation of Israel. The Old Testament prophets would be called, they would say, you know, prophet, go prophesy against the mountains of Edom. And so they'd prophesy against the mountains of Edom. But it was a way of saying prophesy against Edom. Uh, within the book of Revelation, you see the, the great prostitute who sits on seven mountains or seven hills. And, and it says, and those hills are kings. And, and so there's this common imagery of, of nations as mountains. So I would see this as God throwing down the nations and, and all the disaster that comes from that. It's like in chapter 18 when the cry goes up, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And, and he you know, this angel picks up a big boulder and he throws it into the sea and says, with such force, Babylon will be thrown down. So, so it, it seems to me, perhaps this is like that white horse of the four horsemen who goes out and conquers and nations rise and fall. And then, and then the fourth one is the sun going dark. And uh, I would just sort of take this as kind of a summary of everything. You know, we're separated from God. It's dark. That's what it's like when we turn from God. Is we, we're in darkness. Darkness is the fruit of turning from Him who is the light. You know, and so here's the world lost, separated from God in darkness. But the point of all this is that these are warnings from God to the world. You know, the conventional wisdom is, this is conventional wisdom that people have, is that when things go wrong and there's terrifying disasters, people sort of cross their arms and go, See, this is why I don't believe in God. Because if there's a God, this wouldn't happen. Right? But that statement has an unchallenged presupposition. There is an a priori uh, uh, assumption there that's unspoken. What's the assumption? 
The assumption is, we're so wonderful, we never deserve to have anything bad happen to us. We're so pure and clean as the wind-driven snow, the only thing we deserve from God is, you know, two cars and a four-bedroom house, and that's what we deserve from God, because we're so wonderful and decent and good. And that presupposition is where the Bible says, no, we are idolaters. We have turned our backs on our Creator and worshipped the creation. We've made up our own man-made religions, our own man-made philosophies, our own security systems. We've made this world into our little God like Jericho, our own little self-enclosed fortress. And in so doing, we've rejected the Creator. And the reason God is, is these things happen is because God's trying to wake the world up. They're warning judgments. And so we need to pay attention. Terrifying pictures. But this isn't the terrifying verse that I was talking about. And I said earlier, there's a verse in here that really scares me, really unnerves me. This isn't it. Let's go to the next trumpet. Moving right along. Verse 13, As I looked, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Whoa, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth. Because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. So you got this talking angel, this talking eagle flying around. Uh, what is that? Well, it's interesting. The Hebrew word for eagle is the same Hebrew word for vulture. They didn't distinguish the two. So it's like, you know, what, what does it mean when the vultures are flying around? Not good. <laughs> not good. Someone's about to have lunch. <laughs> it's not good. Whoa, it's a disaster omen. And so here's, here's the fifth trumpet. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came. Is that Exodus imagery. Came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. In their tails, they had power to torment people for five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Terrifying images. This is like the uh, black fly season from hell, you know? <laughs> like, these locusts come out. I mean, what is this? What in the world are these things? Well, I, I guess I, I would probably side with many interpreters who see these creatures as demons, just evil spirits. You know, in the biblical worldview, there's more than just the world that we see. There's an invisible world where there's angels and demons. And, and these aren't just personifications of evil in the world. That The Bible teaches there really are these, these things. 
Um, and, and this is what it seems to be. These seem to be demons coming out. Now, why do I think they're demons and not Apache attack helicopters in the future or something like that? Uh, well, number one, they come from the abyss. See where they come from? You know, they come from the abyss. All the smoke comes out of the abyss, and here they come. What's the abyss? Everywhere else in Revelation, the abyss is the holding cell for the demons. That's where they keep, that's where they keep Satan corralled until they let him out. So it's, it's the abode of, of evil spirits where, where God contains them. A second reason I think that these are demons is look down at verse 11. They had his king over them. So the king of these locusts is an angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and the Greek Apollyon. Abaddon is the Hebrew word and Apollyon is the Greek word for destruction or destroyer. So this is a destroyer as their king. I mean, that, he's an angel who's a destroyer. I mean, it's, it seems to me to be Satan. You know, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so here's this, this awful king, Satan, with all of his minions and all of his hordes. And then the third reason I think these are demons is, well, the description of them is so unhuman or superhuman. I mean, this isn't, these aren't people. These aren't you know, things of this world. These are supernatural creatures. You know, again, look at verse 8. Um, 7 and 8, there's the description. They have wings, they have scorpion tails, they have teeth like lions. I mean, these are monstrous creatures, terrifying beings. And so, the fifth trumpet seems to be that God allows and uses even evil spirits to bring warning judgments upon the world. And what is it that they do? Well, they torment. They torment and torture. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the plant of the tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God in their foreheads. And one of the great blessings of knowing Christ is that the Holy Spirit lives in us and another spirit cannot. You know, Christ protects us. But if you don't belong to Christ, if the the mark of Christ is not in your forehead, the seal of God isn't there, then you're you're subject to these terrifying forces. Look at verse 5. They were given power, not not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. Now, why five months? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. It could be a literal five months, although that seems unlikely to me given the numbers being so figurative in Revelation. It could be a figurative five months. I heard one commentator say five months was the length of the life cycle of a locust. I don't know. I haven't read up on that. Someone else said five months is the period of drought in the, you know, during the dry period in uh, Palestine, which is when locusts tend to come, so maybe it's saying they come throughout the whole drought. I mean, I, you know, so it's, it's probably one of those options or another one I haven't heard of. Okay, that covers everything, doesn't it? But um, I think the least we can say is whatever these bugs do, it's only for a limited time. So it's not forever and ever. God has them under His control for His purposes. But more importantly, the important thing is what they do. They torment people. They they bring agony and misery. You know, I was thinking about what we little we know of demons. I really don't want to know any more than this. But what little we know from the Bible is that they, they're awful and they make people miserable. You know, you think about the gospel stories where Jesus kept coming into these head-to-head conflicts with evil spirits. And, and he would, you know, the kingdom of God would come and, and the kingdom of darkness would flee. And as Jesus did that, people would be set free from misery. You know, sometimes it was physical symptoms. You know, people who were demonically oppressed were, you know, they were paralyzed or they'd have seizures or they'd be bent over or they were deaf and mute. You know, it would do things to them physically. But it also included 
sort of psychological torment and emotional torment. I mean, people who have demons in them, they're not happy people. Okay? They're usually like out of control. You know, what is it like to have, to be under the influence of evil? Of, of real evil like that? And it, man, it's, it's torment in here. It, it has to be. It's fear, confusion, despair, suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, obsessive thoughts, out of control thoughts. That's what it's like to have those things inside you. It's not, it's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It's chaos and terror inside one's own soul. It's misery. It's torment. And I was thinking, boy, there's a lot of miserable people today. Here we are in Hingham, the land of plenty, where everybody has everything they need and everyone is so happy. How many people in Hingham medicate themselves every day to get through the week? How many homes look like better homes and gardens on the outside, but if you knew it was going on the inside, you would know it was a living hell? How many families are broken? How many people have everything and yet feel so empty and despairing? You know? Am I saying that every time we're down it's because a demon's attacking us? No, I'm not one of those people that sees demons everywhere and you know, attributes everything to the devil. But, but you know, evil is real and, and it's miserable not to know Christ. It's miserable. There's a peace that passes understanding when you have Jesus, even when you're going through the ringer. There's a peace that passes understanding. But God unleashes these things. Terrifying beings. Very scary. But this is still not the scary verse I was talking about. The scary verse that really freaks me out is still coming. So let's quickly move there. Sixth seal, rolling right along here. Verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound up at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they can inflict injury. Who's writing this? Is this like Edgar Allan Poe? Is this Stephen King? I mean, this is scary. This monstrous beasts and things. What is taking place in this passage? I... If I were to have to interpret this, which I guess I do, it's my job, I guess I would say, um, I think these are, again, pictures of demonic beings. Now, why do I say that? Number one, they're, they're these angels that are being released. Verse 14, release the angels who are bound. So there seem to be spiritual forces at work. Number two, look how many of these things there are. Verse 16, the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. You know, 200 million horses? Are you kidding me? That's, that's vast. That's like, you know, two-thirds of America all on horses in one big army. I mean, it just, it, it seems kind of incredible. Not only that, but probably, that's not even a good translation, I think, of the Greek here. Probably a better translation of the Greek is, is it's a double myriad of myriads. You know, it's a way of saying 
So many, I can't even tell you how many. It's like a myriad of myriads. There's just tons of these creatures. And the third reason, probably to me the most convincing, that these are some kind of demons or evil spirits and they don't represent necessarily literal people on horses is because of the description of the horses. You know? They got lion heads. They breathe fire. They got snake tails. They're just scary. You know? Like Medusa tails. It's freaky. These are supernatural, terrifying beings. But the important thing is their job is not to torment, but to kill. So it's kind of like, the way I see it is I see the sixth trumpet is kind of like the fifth trumpet kicked up a notch. Like, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, there's torment, you're still not listening? Okay, release the Euphrates demons, and they're going to actually have authority to kill and to take life. Notice that they come from the river Euphrates. Why is that important? You know the river Euphrates in Iraq. It runs from northwestern to southeastern Iraq, uh, part of the Fertile Crescent. Uh, But the Euphrates, in biblical imagery, is the place from which invading armies come. The Babylonians and the Assyrians came down from the Euphrates and conquered Palestine. In Rome at this time, when this was written in the first century A.D., the Euphrates was still a scary place because there was a a, a nation up there called the Parthians. And Rome lived in fear that the barbarian Parthians were going to cross the Euphrates and invade the Roman Empire uh, through Asia Minor. So there was a a fear of the Parthians that way. So, So it seems that these are sort of trying to put us all together, which is tough. These are demonic forces that stir up warfare and killing on the earth as part of a warning judgment from God. It's warfare and all those terrible things that go along with it. But just one more thing I'd like to point out about these horses. Notice again what comes out of their mouth. Fire, smoke, and sulfur. It's repeated in verse 18. Fire, smoke, and sulfur. Now here, okay, pop quiz. Where else in Revelation do we see fire, smoke, and sulfur together? In the descriptions of hell itself. So it's almost like as these forces, whatever they are, take lives, they are consigning unrepentant people to their final destiny. That finally hell has found them and it's up. I mean, there's been all these warnings, 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 and then finally God says, that's it. You know? See, when we die, there's not a second chance line. When we die, there's, there's no purgatory. That's not in the Bible. No such place exists. The Scripture is very clear. When we die, it's done. And what we've done in this life with the Gospel, whether or not we've trusted in Christ, is that's it. And there's just heaven and there's just hell. It's a terrifying prospect. And so it's almost like with, these, with this death, the final verdict is being rendered against those who've persistently rejected Christ. A terrifying image. But you know, that's still not the verse that freaks me out. You know which one freaks me out? Verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. 
Dear God, is, is my heart really that hard? Talk about the Exodus imagery. It's like Pharaoh who would not let people go. Why? He hardened his heart. This is the world that we live in where our sinful hearts are so hard that we just ignore God. You know, again, it's, it's conventional wisdom for people to say, well, I'm a spiritual person. I just want to yell sometimes. No, you're not. None of us are. We're sinful people. If we were spiritual, we'd be praising Christ and giving Him the glory. That's what a spiritual person is. That's a person who has the Holy Spirit. They praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you don't have that, you're not spiritual. You're sinful. You're dead. And you're, you're hard. Hard. He's like, what else does God have to do to speak to us? What does He have to say to get our attention? What, what other communication avenues are there left? It's like, you know, He made this whole world. You go out and you look at this amazing world, even on a rainy day, you just think what an incredible creation we live in. This whole universe is a big neon sign from God that says, I'm real. <laughs> love me. I love you. Worship me. Trust me, you know? God is just shouting it to us in the clouds and the geese and the ocean. It's beautiful. But we just, no. And this, this is all random. You know, we're just here. We're evolved from monkeys by blind forces, and this is all, you know, random. Like, okay? So God speaks to us. And He sends prophets, and He sends Moses, and He sends Jesus. And He, he even, He's so kind, He even wrote it down for us. So we could go back and read what He had to say. You know, and he put it in our language. He spoke human language so that we could get it. And God has spent, sent people to speak to you. Your mama told you about Jesus. Your grandfather told you about the Lord. You went to Sunday school. You went to vacation Bible school. Preachers have come and spoken to you. And still, we blow, close our ears. We won't listen. And so God's like, well, what else is there left? Fine, I'm pulling out the trumpet. Put this right in your ear. Are you listening? And so disasters happen and things happen and we just, well, oh, how could there be a God? And then, you know, it, it just goes on and on. And people are in torment and people are in suffering. We see the suffering and misery of people who reject Christ. And still we ignore it. And then finally we sit in funerals and we go to wakes of people we know who die. And still we will not think about eternal matters. And we just, you know, get through the funeral, get through the wake, sorry to hear about it, got to go home, watch TV. And we still won't think about these things. It's like, we, we're so hardened. It's such a terrifying thought. This is what really scares me. That the sinful human heart is so blind, so dead, so deaf, so insensible, so ignorant, so dark, that, it, that not even these trumpets can pierce the hardness of the sinful human heart. Instead, we go on, as it says in verse 20, worshiping demons, worshiping the work of our hands, idols. Verse 21, we don't repent. We keep on murdering, whether we do it with our hands or whether we do it with our heads. We're full of bitterness and anger. We practice magic arts. People do, you know, seances and tarot cards and Wicca and astrology and superstition as if there's no God to be consulted. Sexual immorality, adultery, pornography, sleeping around, all the different types of deviancy that we've created. Thefts, we're greedy and covetous. and We just keep going and going and going despite all these things. This is why 
This is why we have got to keep talking about Jesus Christ. Because He is the only one who has the power to actually transform my heart condition and and make me a new person. I I need something huge. I I need more than just some therapy. I need more than just pastoral counseling. I I need more than a 12-step program. I need more than a self-help book. I need a new heart. Where do I go for that? Where do they sell that at Barnes & Noble's? Do they sell new hearts at Whole Foods? Where do I get one? Where do I, how can I change? And I'm so thankful for Jesus. Because not only did He shed His blood on the cross to forgive the guilt of my sin, but he, we've always, we forget, forget to talk about this sometimes, but He rose from the dead so that He has the power to free me from sins. So He can actually change me on the inside. I mean, that's real Christianity. Not just churchianity, but it's a changed life through the power of God. And it's an awesome thing when God does that. Jesus has the power to change our hearts and our lives. Even for us as Christians, those of us who've been saved, we still feel the deadening effects of sin, don't we? You know? It's like it's why I gotta pray every day. I just gotta get on my knees and be like, Jesus, I love you, but man, I, I am so tempted by so much stuff and so much worldly thinking. I need you every day to sort of give me a fresh infusion of power so I can keep resisting sin and walking in obedience. It's a daily walk, even as a Christian, because the power of sin is so insidious. And unless I have divine power every day, trusting in Christ, I will not be able to resist because that's how powerful it is. And so, we need Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, friends, first time people, welcome. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. We, we need Him. Let's pray.